We come together with God's people to worship him. And we serve a God, we worship a God this morning who has given to his people great and precious promises. Specific promises. Clear promises. I'm afraid that sometimes when we come to church, we're not really sure of who God is. And we're not remembering his promises to us. I hope that this morning we will remember his promises, be reminded of who he is and what he has done in his son, Christ, as we've sung together this morning already. Let's approach his word now. Let's approach his eternal word, praying for our own hearts to see, to believe what God has promised us. You join me in praying. As I pray, please pray silently for yourselves. Father, we come to you this morning, again acknowledging how great you truly are. Lord, your wisdom is unsearchable. Your ways are inscrutable. No one has been your counselor. No one has given you anything. From you and through you and to you are all things. And to you belongs all glory forever. We are undeserving. We are very small this morning. We are frail and finite. We are also very sinful, full of ourselves and distracted in our lives, thinking ourselves to be bigger, more important than we really are. I pray that you would save us this morning from that wrong understanding of ourselves, that you would rescue us this morning from our overinflated view of self and that you would direct our attention to the Messiah, the Christ who you have provided, who you have given for your glory, for your namesake, that you would cause Jesus to be wonderful in our mind, to be wonderful in our eyes and in our estimation, that as we leave today, we would be so overwhelmed by his person and his work that you would fuel us and sustain us with this view of him I pray for those here who are lost there are several here we are sure that are lost they do not know you they do not worship you truly I pray that you would rescue them from their false understanding of life and from their false understanding of you, from their false understanding of Jesus, that you would show them this morning their great need and your provision for their need, and that Jesus would be their Lord even today. We pray for your glory to be accomplished in all of these things through your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Genesis 14 is where we are this morning. Genesis 14 is 
probably, I, I think, the most unique chapter that we have encountered as we have walked through the book of Genesis. This chapter is unlike any other chapter we've looked at to this point. In this chapter, we will see for the first time kings, kings given explicitly. Now, we have seen Nimrod. Nimrod, remember Nimrod? Nimrod was over a kingdom, so he was a king for sure. Adam was absolutely a king. We saw that. Noah was given the same responsibility that Adam was given. And so we've seen kings before, but this is the first time the term king and the idea of king is, explic is explicitly given. And in this text, we will also see for the first time the concept of priest. So here in Genesis 14, we see for the first time explicitly given king, kings, and a priest. Again, in the text to this point, we've seen Adam is a priest. Adam is a priest in God's mountain temple garden of Eden. Noah serves as a priest. We've seen several altars and sacrifices to this point, but this is the first time we are going to see explicitly given a priest. In this chapter as well, this is the first time in the book of Genesis that we are going to see war. Now, up to this point, we've definitely seen violence and killing. But this is the first time in all of the Bible where we are given organized war. Instead of reading the entire chapter like we usually do, usually we stand in honor of God's word and we read the entire chapter, I thought this morning what I'd like to do is read through and explain as, as we go. Explain it along the way, kind of like we would do if we were reading it to our children, okay? If I'm sitting around with my kids reading through the Bible, I don't read through the whole thing. I, I stop at different points and explain it along the way, okay? And this, this is an exciting story. This is one of a lot of adventure and excitement. Let me direct your attention to verse 1 there in chapter 14. Genesis 14, starting in verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Okay? Stop right there. Do you remember what happened at Shinar? I'm going to ask all the kids. Okay, it's just us here. It's just us here today. It's just us here this morning. We don't have to impress anybody. Okay? It's just us. We're a family. So I'm going to ask the kids. Kids, this whole text starts off with Amraphel, king of Shinar. Do you remember what happened at Shinar already in the Bible to this point? What happened at Shinar? Somebody just shout it out. What happened at Shinar? Tower of Babel. I heard it from two places. Tower of Babel. So Robinson kids again. Those Robinson kids. I should give out a prize or something. Who, who said it over here? Very good, Evie. I'm not giving a prize to you. <laughs> in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, this is where the Tower of Babel was built. Okay, so that should be in your mind. Arioch, king of Elisar. Kedor Laomer, king of Elam. Now this guy, we're going to find out, is the leader of the group. Okay, he's going to be the most significant king. We're going to discover, in title, king of Goim. Now, Goim, Goim is the name for nations and peoples. Indicates that title was possibly a, a king over a little empire, maybe. 
These kings, all, all of these kings, are the kings of Mesopotamia, or we're just going to call it the East, okay? They're from the East. These are the Eastern kings. Now, kids, again, Eastern kings. Remember directions? East. In the book of Genesis, East is good or bad? Bad. East is not good, okay? So the Eastern kings, these are not good guys. These are bad guys. These kings... Continue the text. Made war with Barak, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Okay, so these five kings given there are mainly from the southern region that borders Canaan. We're going to refer to these as the western kings. So you have the eastern kings and the western kings. All these, the eastern kings and the western kings, joined forces, it says, in the valley of Sedim. That is, the Salt Sea, what we know as the Dead Sea. Again, down in the southern region of the land of Canaan, on the border of the land of Canaan there. Look at what the text says next. Twelve years they had served Kedor Laomer, but in the 13th, 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to In Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Okay? So the eastern kings, imagine, if you will, now in your perspective, it's over here. So the eastern kings come up and then down into the land of Canaan, and on their way, they are subjugating, resubjugating the peoples that they encounter. For 12 years, these peoples have been under Keter Laomer, but in the 13th year, they rebel. And so these eastern kings are coming to subjugate them, resubjugate them. As they come down this highway, to meet these western kings, they are defeating and subjugating all the peoples that they meet along the way. Now, I want you to take a note of these peoples that they are subjugating, that they're defeating. At least two of these identified peoples, the Rephaim and the Emim, these are giant people. If you look in Deuteronomy 2, the Rephaim, the, these are like Goliath. Okay, these are mighty warriors. These are big people, giant people. The point is very simple. The force of eastern kings coming from Mesopotamia over and down into Canaan, subjugating all these peoples, this eastern force is unstoppable. They're mighty. They're powerful. They are coming and you are not going to stop them. These are mighty kings. So as they're coming down and defeating all of these peoples, then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, 
the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, these five western kings, they go out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, title king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of Binyamin pits, okay, that's tar pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Okay, so the western kings come up to meet these powerful eastern kings, and what happens? Kids, what happens as the western kings come up to meet the eastern kings? What happens? Western kings get defeated. That's right. See, you're following along. The Bible's understandable, right? Don't let all these big names, you know, distract you. The western kings are beat and beat soundly. The western kings led by the king of Sodom. He's going to become prominent again here in a minute. In a minute. They come up against this unstoppable force and they are defeated. But then notice what else takes place. The eastern kings come in and they take all of the possessions. They take all the people and possessions. They're the victors. This is what you do. When you're the victors, right? You, you take all the people that you can. They're going to become slaves for you and servants for you. You take all the possessions. You're the winner. But then notice what else they take. They also took Lot the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. So up to this point, this war between the eastern kings and the western kings seems to have little to do with the story that we've been following, the story of Abram. But then, we have this little note saying, that the eastern kings also take Lot and all of his stuff. Remember Lot. We looked at Lot last week. Lot was given a choice. Lot was given the option. You can go this way or that. You can go west towards Bethel, the house of God, Lot, or you can go east towards Ai, ruin. Which one, which one are you going to choose? Lot and Lot chooses ruin. Lot chooses to go east, and he goes as far as the city of Sodom. We saw that last week. He makes a terrible choice. Led, remember, he's led by his eyes. He's led by what he wants. He's led by his desires. He makes a choice that on the surface seems reasonable enough. But as J.C. Ryle says in his book on holiness, beware Lot's choice. This choice that Lot makes leads him to death, the way of death. It isn't going well for Lot. So Lot's choice ends up getting him in trouble as he's taken by these eastern kings. However, this seems to be the point up to this point, the eastern and western kings, the battle hasn't involved the story at all until they take Lot and his family and his possessions. And this, this is a bad move 
on the part of the eastern kings. Why? Because Lot is a member of a very important family. Lot is a member of the family of Abram. And Abram, you remember, has been given great promises. Abram has been promised unimaginable promises. And these powerful, unstoppable kings make a fatal mistake by messing with the family of promise. Look at the text as it continues. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram, Abram here for the first time is called a Hebrew. He's an outsider. He doesn't belong to these peoples that live in Canaan. But he does have some allies. We see that there. He's dwelling by the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite. And this guy has brothers. As they are together there, it looks like, a captured prisoner, someone from Lot's house, it seems, who has been captured, escapes and runs to Abram to tell Abram that Lot has been taken. So look at what Abram does. In his household, he has trained men. 318 trained men Abram has in his house. This tells you that indeed Abram is blessed by God. God has been enlarging the household of Abram. These are just the trained men. Men trained for war. 318 men. So in Abram's household, there must be at least a couple of thousand people. These guys have wives and children. Then there are other servants. Abram's household is significant. Big. But that being said, 318 men surely could not equal this unstoppable force of the eastern kings, could it? 318 men going up against these four mighty kings from the east. By comparison, Abram's force, his military force of 318 trained men, would have been significantly smaller. However, he leads these men and pursues the kings of the east all the way to Dan. And Dan is seen as the northernmost point of what would become the land of Israel. He then divides his forces. So Abram apparently knows a little bit of military tactics here. He divides his forces and defeats the kings of the east. He makes quick work of them. He pursues them all the way north of Damascus. 
So, so here's the picture. Abram takes his guys and he chases down these eastern kings. He whoops them and then keeps on chasing them all the way up north of Damascus. He says, get up out of this land. Go back to where you came from. Abram is pictured here as a mighty, warring king leading his forces to victory. And he gets back all the possessions and all the women and all the people. His victory is complete. Let me ask you this. What's the picture of Abram that you have in your mind when you think of Abram? What's the picture you have of Abram when you think of some of you? Some of you grew up on flannel graph. Right, you grew up in flannel graph where Abram, Abram and, and like, you know, Elijah were the same guy. They just switched them out when it came to that story, you know. The Bible guys always look the same. They always look the same. What, what does your imagination tell you about Abram? Is he old and kind of just hobbling through the desert, right? Well, Genesis 14 tells us Abram is a mighty, warring king. He knows how to fight. He's a warrior. You know, you know, some of you love, some of you get really fascinated with like, you know, I've, I've been reading a book on the Crusades about the knights, the Templar knights and the hospitalers and all these, you know, forces going up against in the, in the Holy Land against Islam and all that. Some of you love that all that picture. Listen, that's all great, but Abram, Abram, he's this kind of guy. He's a warring king who leads his forces against unstoppable kings, and yet he is victorious. That's the picture Genesis 14 is giving us. As strong as the kings of the east are, Abram is shown here to be stronger. And not because he had superior forces, because he doesn't, but because he has the promises of God. We've not yet reached the pinnacle of the story. We're going to get to that just in a minute, in just a second. But before we read on, I want to make a couple of observations to this point here from Genesis 14. I want to, I want to stop briefly and just pastor you a little bit. What is Moses seeking to communicate to the people of Israel as he tells them this account? What is Moses? So that's who it's, Moses was writing this account and he's writing it to the people of Israel getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. What, what is he communicating to them? What's the point? I've summarized it this way. Here's, here's the point. God's promises are invincible. God's promises are invincible. We see very clearly that through this battle, God is carrying out exactly what he promised to Abram. Remember what he promised to Abram? You will become a great nation. You will be blessed. Your name will be great. Abram is being blessed with prosperity. Abram is blessed with victory. 
By implication, one would expect that fertility is just around the corner. Remember, this is, this is what's involved with blessing. Prosperity, fertility, victory. Abram is very prosperous, just as God has promised him. Abram is victorious over his enemies, just as God has promised him. And surely God will carry forth the promise of fertility, to be sure. His name is becoming great in the eyes of all the region. Abram becomes the savior of all these peoples. He becomes the mighty warrior who saves from the eastern kings. Those who bless Abram will be blessed. And those who mess with Abram and his family, they will not fare well. It's Genesis 14. Abram's name is, name is becoming synonymous with blessing and will be the one. He, he, he and his family will be the family all peoples will long to be. God's promises are invincible. God is going to do what he promised. Let's think back to Genesis 12, 13, and 14 real quick, okay? What do we see in Genesis 12? Famine. Severe famine. God takes severe famine and turns it into great wealth. His promises are invincible. God takes the disobedience and faithlessness of his people and God brings them home every time. Family strife occurs. God uses this as a means to accomplish his purposes. Even Lot, in his sinful choice of going down to the Fertile Valley, even Lot, in his sinful choice, he is the one in his sinful choice that gives opportunity for Abram to pick up the sword and demonstrate God's faithfulness. The promises of God are invincible. Do you see why this particular story might be relevant for the people going into the land of Canaan? Stop and think for, about it for a second. Why would this story be very relevant for them as they're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. They are, in fact, the people of promise. The kings and peoples who inhabit the land, the kings and the peoples who will come up against them. God is on the side of Israel. God will defeat all of those nations and peoples who come against them because they have been given the promises. God's promises are invincible. By implication, then, we see that the invincibility of God's promises will require, sometimes, more than passivity. I want you to get this. God's promises are invincible, but as we see here with Abram, and as we will see with the nation of Israel, Oftentimes, believing in God's promises requires action. We've seen Abram show his trust and faith in God by taking his hands off of a situation. This week, he picks up a sword. This week, he leads an army. So get this, a life, a life for God's people of walking by faith 
will be a mixture, always a mixture of passive, that is taking our hands off the situation, and active, getting involved, speaking up, saying something, getting busy. If we are going to walk by faith, we've, we've got to understand that sometimes this will require us to wait, and sometimes it will require us to act. And if you are to believe the promises, if you are to rest in the promises and act upon the promises, if, if this is going to be how we live, walking by faith, if we're going to live out of the promises of God, then we will need to have great wisdom to know when to wait and when to act. We will need wisdom to know the difference between when it's time to wait, when it's time to act, when it's time to get busy. But this leads to another implication if we are going to live out of God's promises, if we are going to walk by faith, which will require passivity and action, if we are going to walk by faith, if we're going to believe his promises, then we need clarity. We need clarity regarding what God has indeed promised us. And this, this is where my concern is. Frankly, as I look out and I, I look at all of us here, this is where I have concern. My concern for us this morning as Trinity Church is that we are very fuzzy. We are very fuzzy in our language about what God has promised us. We're very fuzzy in our understanding of what God has promised us. We're very generic in understanding God's promises. God has made us specific, clear promises. He has made us promises, and all of these promises, and I've said this before, but all of these promises to us this morning, all of these promises are found in Christ, in the person and work of Christ. If I'm going to live out of faith in God's promises, if I'm going to know when to wait and when to act, if I'm to know how to live, I've got to be clear on what God has in fact promised me. What has God said to me in Christ, to us in Christ? What does my trust, what does my rest in Christ look like in this situation? What does action based on the promises of Christ look like in this circumstance? If we're going to exercise wisdom, then we must be clear on what God has said. And here's what, here's what fuzziness does for us. Fuzziness as someone once said, nothing, no real change happens in fuzziness. If we're fuzzy, if we are unclear, this will lead to inaction. 
It will lead to anxiety. Angst. It will lead to cowardice. Confusion. And even, for God's people, even hopelessness. As God's people, should we be hopeless? But how often we feel hopeless. How often we worry and are confused about what God may be doing in our lives. I believe that you can take those feelings of hopelessness and confusion and angst and anxiety and inaction. I believe you can tie all of this back to a lack of clarity, a lack of specificity with what God has indeed promised us. We cannot, this is it, we cannot appropriate God's promises to our lives if we are not sure of what God has actually said. What has God promised us in Christ this morning? Again, all of God's promises for his people are found in Christ and our union with Christ. Christ died for our sins and was raised. That's the gospel. And this reality, the reality of Christ's death and resurrection, anchors all of God's promises to us. We have been given everything. Now, sometimes we look at what's been promised to Abram, we think, well, that's, that's, those are good promises. A great nation, blessing, a great name. All those who bless him will be blessed. All those who curse him will be cursed. All the families of the earth will be blessed in him. But I, I want you to understand that what we've been given in Christ is the fulfillment of all those promises. You see, God has not promised us this morning health. He's not promised us that we will be healthy. He's not promised us that we will have a meaningful job that we love. He has not promised us that our marriage will be satisfying. He has not even promised us marriage. He has not promised us children. He has not promised us worldly happiness. He's not promised us any of those things. We could just keep on listing all the things he hasn't promised us. But what he has given us, he's not given us health, wealth, and prosperity, okay? But what he has given to us is far better. I want to continue with the story as it unfolds. We're going to see how the rest of this passage points directly to the Christ. Abram has defeated the eastern kings. He has won back all the people and women and possessions. And he brings back these spoils of victory. And as he comes back, he is met by two kings. Look at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High 
who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Let's stop right there for a moment. Abram comes back and is met by two kings. Do you see them there? First, he's met by the king of Sodom. This guy who just got whooped. This guy who just got beat. The king of Sodom. But also, with the king of Sodom, is another king. Coming out to meet him is also the king of Salem. Now, I don't know if you pick up on this, but this is very odd. This is a very odd reference. This king of Salem has not been anywhere in the story to this point. His ancestors haven't been recorded. He comes out of nowhere. His name is Melchizedek, meaning king of righteousness. And he's also the king of Salem, which will one day become Jerusalem. So he's the king of the ancient precursor to Jerusalem. King of righteousness and king. Salem means peace. The king of righteousness and the king of peace. And Melchizedek brings something with him. Do you see what he brings with him? Melchizedek brings bread and wine with him out to greet Abram. Now, both bread and wine have shown up in the story to this point. Before in the story, right? Where have we seen bread and wine show up prominently earlier in the story? Well, Adam, after he sins... He's told that part of the curse on the ground is that he will eat his bread with much toil. Noah, again, after the template of Adam, Noah sins. But how does Noah sin? He plants a vineyard. And he drinks of the wine of that vineyard. And he becomes drunk. And this leads to the dishonoring and the curse of his grandson, but now we see the king of Salem. Very interesting. The king of Salem, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and of peace. He comes out bringing with him bread and wine. And he's bringing out this bread and wine to bless Abram. Bread and wine that has been associated to this point with curse. Here in Genesis 14 is associated with blessing. We also see something very important, a very important note here about the king of Salem. It says that he is a priest of God Most High. The first priest we have recorded for us explicitly in Scripture. So Melchizedek, get this, Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. He's coming out of nowhere. And this king-priest pronounces blessing upon Abram in the name of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. He also blessed God for the victory he has won on the behalf of Abram. So this, this Melchizedek, he worships and serves God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And look at the result of this blessing. 
Melchizedek comes out to bless Abram with bread and wine and, and, and pronounces blessing upon Abram in the name of God Most High. Look at what Abram does. Look at what Abram does. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He offers Melchizedek a tithe, offers to him a tenth of everything. He gives a tenth of all that he's won in battle. This, Abram is showing honor and respect and reverence for this king priest. This king is greater than Abram. Get that. So the eastern kings come and they are mighty. But Abram comes up and Abram's mightier. And then Abram comes back in victory and he pays homage to Melchizedek who's even greater. It's just this upward crescendo. Melchizedek is this great king. Abram gives honor and reverence, but this is contrasted with the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom does not acknowledge Abram in his great victory. Look at, what so look at what the king of Sodom does. Look at what he says. His first words are, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Uh, that's not how it works. Don't you, haven't, you, haven't you read the rules of ancient warfare, king of Sodom? To the victor go the spoils. It all belongs to me, king of Sodom. I'll keep everything. That's what Abram could have responded. But Sodom comes out, king of Sodom comes out in his self-importance, and he says, yeah, 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 give me the people. You can have the possessions. It's very rude. Very dismissive. Abram is the victor, and rightfully, the spoils belong to him. But look at what Abram says to the king of Sodom. Look at it there in verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Same language that Melchizedek just used. I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of men who went with and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Look at what he says. I'm not taking anything from you, Sodom. I'm not taking anything from you, King of Sodom. I won't even take a single thread. I will not even take a single shoelace. I will not entangle myself with you, king of Sodom, lest you be able to say in any way whatsoever that you made me rich. By implication, you didn't make me rich, king of Sodom. The Lord, Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, he, he is the source of my blessing, not you. Let my allies have their share, but I don't want anything from you. So, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem are contrasted. Great dishonor for the king of Sodom and great honor for the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Now, we'll see shortly. Some of you know the story already. Some of you know what's going to happen. We're going to see what, what's going to take place for the king of Sodom and his city, aren't we? We know what happens to Sodom. But what about Melchizedek? 
Is Melchizedek simply here in the story to play the foil to Sodom? Why is Melchizedek here? Can you he, he, he comes on the scene out of nowhere, this great king of God Most High, priest of God Most High, and then Melchizedek disappears. Can you imagine the Hebrew children listening to their parents tell them this story? I don't, I don't know if you caught that. Like He comes out of nowhere and then he leaves and nothing more is said about him. But dad... What about Melchizedek? I want to hear more about Melchizedek. I want to know what happens to the great king that blessed Abram, Father Abram. What about him? Imagine if you were watching a play. Imagine if you were watching a play and, and in the middle of this play, a, a, a character comes out onto the stage with a prominent role, a very significant role, and you weren't expecting him. He comes out of nowhere. You don't know who he is. And then just as soon as he appears on stage, he leaves. And something that he did is extremely important. That's very confusing. Very hard to get your mind around. And he's never mentioned in the narrative again. In the whole story of Israel and the people Melchizedek is never mentioned in the narrative. But then, but then, the great king of Israel and psalmist of Israel, King David, pens a psalm depicting another great king of Israel. David speaks of a king that will be greater than he is, and will not only be a king, but will also be a priest. I don't have you do this very often, but I want you to do this. Turn to Psalm 110. Will you do that? Turn to Psalm 110. David writes a psalm, and, and again, Melchizedek doesn't show up anywhere else in the narrative. Only in Genesis 14. But in Psalm 110... David says this. Look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Now look at this verse. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. Now the word chiefs there is the word head. He will shatter heads. Remember the promise in Genesis 3.15. The promise that the, the king to come will crush the head. It says he will shatter chiefs. He will shatter heads over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore he will lift up his head. David says... There's a future king. There's another king who's greater than I am. The Lord, Yahweh, says to one who is my Lord, a greater king than me. He says, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
And then in verse 4, he says, I have sworn and will not change. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then it goes on to talk about this great victory that this king priest will accomplish as the Lord Yahweh fights for him. Do you hear the themes of Genesis 14 there? You hear Genesis 14? Kings and priests, victory over the mighty kings of the earth. Most commentators, and I agree with them, most commentators believe that Psalm 110 is David's purposeful commentary on Genesis 14. David is telling you how to interpret Genesis 14. He's showing you the implications here of Genesis 14. And we see a bit how Genesis 14 operates in the consciousness of the people of Israel. Abram's victory over kings foreshadows the victory of God's king over all the nations and their rebellious kings and peoples. The figure of Melchizedek as a king, priest, foreshadows the role that God's anointed king, the Messiah, will hold. So Genesis 14 is pointing forward. And its meaning plays such an important role in David's thinking about the coming Messiah. So much so that he uses it as, as the background for his psalm that is so clearly messianic in its implications. But th there's, there's one more thing. As we come into the New Testament, what Old Testament passage is quoted more than any other Old Testament passage in the New Testament? So what Old Testament passage is quoted most often in the New Testament? Psalm 110. The apostles, the writers of the New Testament, use Psalm 110 more than any other passage in the Old Testament to explain who Jesus is. In particular, don't want to miss this, in particular, Psalm 110 and the figure of Melchizedek is picked up in the book of Hebrews. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek, of all characters in the Old Testament, Melchizedek gets three chapters, three chapters in the book of Hebrews on Melchizedek and his priesthood. Three chapters. And... The writer of Hebrews tells his audience that the fact that they cannot understand the connection of Melchizedek to Jesus is a sign of their immaturity. He actually tells them, I have much about this subject to tell you, but you can't hear it because you're dull of hearing. You're immature. You're not ready to hear it. Melchizedek, for the writer of Hebrews, is a central figure. He is a type. He is a picture. He is a figure that the archetype that Jesus, the priest king, is built upon. Jesus is the priest king appointed by God. He is the son of God and the great high priest for his people. 
Hebrews tells us that the priesthood of Jesus is forever. Like Melchizedek, he has no beginning or end. This is a play on how Melchizedek's character functions. He comes in and he leaves without any mention. Jesus' priesthood is forever. He stands forever making intercession for his people. Therefore, because of his work as a priest, he saves his people to the uttermost. While the Aaronic priest, the Levitical priest, had to take an oath, Jesus is sworn in by an oath made by God. God is the one who has sworn on oath, an oath on behalf of his son. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in this, he transcends the requirements of the Mosaic law. He is acknowledged not by the law, but on the grounds of an indestructible life. He cannot die. His priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. Aaron and his descendants were appointed by God. And they could understand the weaknesses of men because they too were men. However, they were sinful men. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sin before mediating the sacrifices on behalf of Israel, but not Jesus. Jesus was a man and is therefore acquainted with the weaknesses and infirmities of humanness, and yet he is without sin. He is the perfect high priest. But back to what I was saying a minute ago. How does that impact your life? See, this is, this is, this is the issue. Nothing I just said, nothing I just said is new information for most of you. Most of what I just said is not new information. For some of you, it might be new information. But the scripture tells us that we have a king priest, a priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. And then Hebrews says, let us hold fast our profession. How does the fact that you have a high priest who is interceding for you forever, how does that impact your life today? And this is where the fuzziness comes in. We have real good doctrinal clarity, but we don't understand how this actually applies to our life and changes anything about how we go about our life. Do you know, do you know a place where we find some really easy help for connecting the dots on how this impacts our life? Well, let's look at a hymn. This is what the hymns do. That's why they're so great. And this is my favorite hymn, so yes, I'm taking advantage of the situation. Listen to the words of this hymn. One that you know, but you need to think about what it's saying. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Did you know that you have a Messiah? You have a Savior this morning that is pleading on your behalf, interceding on your behalf right now. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. 
No, nothing can take me from him. Nothing. My situation is, is established. It's firm. It's settled. I'm not going anywhere. He holds me fast. Verse 2 is my favorite verse because it is so much like my life. When Satan tempts me to despair. Does he tempt you to despair? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, and there's a lot of guilt he can point at. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. How do you think about yourself? Do you think about yourself the way God thinks about you? Do you live under your guilt day after day? There is no reason to live under your guilt. He has removed it. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high with Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. See, th this is the truth of Melchizedek and the truth of who Jesus is written out and applied to our life and our thinking and the way we navigate life. Praise be to God for what he's accomplished and the promises he's given us. There's no reason for us to walk out hopeless or despairing. We've been given everything in Christ, everything. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for Genesis 14. Thank you for the picture that it presents for us of your son, king, priest, Jesus. I pray for those who are here this morning who are not in Jesus and they think they're going to stand before you and that you will somehow understand their, their situation. Oh Lord, I pray that you would show them today there's no way to be accepted before God apart from Jesus and Jesus' work. No way. And I pray for all of us who have professed faith in Christ that we would be clear on what in fact he has given us that we would live boldly in that reality, that we would live patiently despite any circumstance or situation, knowing what you've accomplished, knowing where you're taking us, knowing what you're doing. Make us people who walk by faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, our priest better than any priest, greater than any priest, our great high priest who is right now in your presence. I pray that we would live in light of these promises. For your glory, we pray. Amen.